0: Again, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, your brothers and sisters at Shehalem Valley Presbyterian just over the hill. Uh, We are grateful for you. We pray for you and your minister and your elders regularly. Uh, We pray for Joe, Joe more often. He had to deal with me on some Presbytery business. Poor guy. You doing all right, Joe? Yes, I'm sure it did. We've been talking a little bit over at CVP about the nature of worship, why we do what we do, uh, and what purposes it has. There's a lot of ideas about why we do worship uh, floating around, and as I mentioned these, they're not meant so much as a critique, but I think you've probably heard that You know, worship is evangelism. The idea that what we do corporately on Sunday morning should be oriented in such a way that it reaches the lost and draws them to Christ. This is prominent in a lot of our brothers and sisters uh, across many denominations uh, and uh, different branches of the church. There is the idea that worship is education. That the sermon becomes the center point in such a degree that what you expect is to be fed. Fed meaning some interesting, useful, theological truth being dispensed by someone in my position. That, and it's perhaps more of a tendency within our circles to think of worship as really having a strong educational component to it. There is a, there is a, a trend in other churches that worship should be experienced. The idea that we experience the presence of God, that emotionally and spiritually, physically, there is a way in which I am experiencing the presence of God. And so you have a worship service very strongly oriented towards eliciting emotions and feelings of a particular type. Finally, probably most prominently in our culture, uh, is the idea that worship is fundamentally praise that I don't bring anything, I shouldn't come to God to ask for anything, he's done so much already, what I should do is just come and thank him for all he's done. Now, of course, as we take any four of these ideas in and of themselves, they have elements of truth. Of course, worship should be accessible to those who are not professing believers, that it could and should point to the goodness of Christ in evangelism. And how can we imagine that worship isn't praise when most of the psalms sing and exalt God and praise Him for who He is? Can't imagine coming to church and not learning anything. That would be mildly awkward. And if we worship in such a disembodied fashion that there's no emotional experience in what happens in worship, does that seem true to who we are and how we were created? Of course, the answer is no. The challenge is, of course, when we make worship all about only one of these things. None of them alone fills our need for God. None None of them alone fill our needs as God's people for what we need to do and who we are. Left to themselves, they become odd parodies of worship. Odd similes of the fullness of what we need and expect in worship. So this morning what I want to do is use Isaiah 6... As an outline of what heavenly worship is, what Isaiah's ushered into, that gives us basically some building blocks that can transcend time and culture, but do create a rhythm for what happens in worship. Apologize, I keep sticking my hand in my pocket. I usually wear a robe, I don't have pockets. I don't know what to do with myself. Appreciate your patience. Let's put God's word in front of us now with that in mind as we look at Isaiah's experience in what's often called his commission. I'll be reading from the NIV. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on the throne, high and exalted. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two, they were covering their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts, the doorposts and the thresholds shook. And the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, for I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, from a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sins atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are grateful. Uh, Grateful that you sent your Son. Grateful that you gave us your Word in the flesh and Word recorded for us. We thank you that the Holy Spirit desires to make it sharper than any two-edged sword, that we might be transformed even in this time by your Word. Lord, we ask this morning that the words that are said would be useful and Building up your people. And whatever is said that is not true or useful, may those words quickly be forgotten. In Christ's name, amen. So many of you have young children. My children are all older. Uh, They've stopped asking me any questions, which is one of those eventual things. But you know, as young children, uh, of course, the question why is not uncommon in certain age group why is a very regular question for our children to ask Uh, kids ask the question and I got to tell you that even when I was growing uh, my children from a young age I don't know that I was always terribly tolerant uh, of the question why but the reality is that that willingness and ability to ask the question why is how we learn and what gives meaning and substance to some of the most mundane things we do That the reality is that for our children to know why they do certain things because we're a family, because this is what it means to serve one another, because this is what patience looks like. All these reasons we have as parents for some of the mundane things that we require and ask our children to do as participants in the family and as participants in the community of faith. This is what it means to grow in Christ. This is what it means to grow in our understanding of what maturity is. To thinking of ourselves other uh, above the needs of others at times, and so on and so forth. That those questions, why, are opportunities for us to talk about the realities and the significance of even the most mundane of actions. I want us to look a little bit this morning in this passage of Isaiah's answering the question, why on earth do we show up in this building week after week? What's the point? Isn't there a way in which we could Thank God for who he is the rest of the week. Not take up our time and our money. And perhaps use the time more wisely. Why do we have to show up? Why is it good for us to show up to corporate worship? I want to suggest that it's something you need. It is fundamentally something that God designs for our good. Not for God's good, but for ours. It is to aid us in our growth in Christ-likeness. That great call that Paul makes so explicit in so many of his epistles that Jesus exhorts us to, that the whole Old Testament builds towards that this idea that worship is fellowship with God and fellowship with God is an opportunity to become better and better image bearers. Reflecting his glory and his character, not just back to God, but to one another and therefore to a watching world around us. That it is for our good and that God desires to meet with us. It is an answer, if you will, fleshing out first uh, the shorter catechism, question one. What is the chief end of humanity to glorify God and enjoy Him forever? How do we learn how to do that? I want to suggest that the basic building blocks are found in the rhythm of what we see in Isaiah 6. in the rest of Scripture, we could go to Leviticus and I could show you over a number of sacrifices, how they build on these principles. But this is kind of a tight, quick synopsis of the fundamentals of worship that you find every week in the liturgy that Eric prepares that's built on a great understanding and tradition of what it means to come into the presence of God. So a couple of quick ideas this morning. First of all, worship. The English word, some of you perhaps are familiar with, the English word means to see something's worth and to give it proper honor. Now, unfortunately, what that's regularly understood to mean is that we understand God's worth and we come here to give him what he's worth. The problem is, of course, that in and of ourselves, we don't recognize God's worth. The interesting thing is in a lot of the Hebrew words in the Old Testament that are translated into the word worship, it's grammatically ambiguous as to whether or not God is worshiping us or we are worshiping God. What that means is that God sees us as worthy because He created us in His image, even though we rebelled, even, be, even though Adam and Eve left and attempted to establish their own divinity, to be like God, to be independent, to be non-derivative, That God seeks us out. Because of the glory of what he did in creating us like him. He sees us as worthy of his own son. How else can we read something like John 3.16 and not get the reality that for reasons often lost in the mind of God. He sees us as lovely and beautiful and worth giving everything he had for. You and I rarely come moderately close to that emotion in worship. Even though we've been poured out, imagine the capacity of the divine. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to see you as worthy of his own son. Worship starts with God declaring us worthy. God pursuing us as worthwhile. Welcoming us into his presence because he loves us and sees us as worthy of his time. It is in response to that, of course, how else can we not see God as worthy of praise? Because he knows me in my most dark moments. And yet he sees me as worthy. How can we not celebrate passages like Romans 5? That that we now have peace with God. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is a declaration of worthiness that no self help book can give you. Your idea of self worth and importance. No matter how successful, how beautiful, how talented, how righteous, how moral you are, is there any more solid definition and foundation for your own sense of self-worth and being than the creator of the universe to say, I come to serve you. I come to wash your feet, to make you mine. The premise of worship starts with God seeing us as worthy. And that makes sense. Because God never requires something of us that he does not first provide. We don't have the ability to create anything from nothing. We are all derivative. That was part of the problem with Adam and Eve, right? It's part of our problem today. At some point, I would like to be independent. At some point, I'd like my kids to be independent, but that's a separate issue. I'd like to be independent. The reality is, however, the creator of the universe sustains my very existence. I'm always derivative. I'm always dependent. Therefore, God cannot ask of me something that He does not give me first because I don't have it. I cannot give Him honor and praise and reflect if He does not first give me the glory and honor that I need to reflect back to Him. I'm a mirror. I'm a reflector of his image. That is what we are when we gather together in worship. That's what we are as individuals the rest of the week. We'll talk more about the implications the rest of the week in a moment. But first and foremost, worship is an indication of God's view of your worth. That he desires to be with you. And that he desires to be with us collectively and individually. The way we know we are individually accepted is the way he talks about us collectively as his people. Which brings us to the second point is that worship is a process. Uh, sometimes we talk about it as a covenant renewal service or a sacrificial service because it references and, and is reminiscent of throughout the New Testament of the sacrificial system. It's what Hebrews keeps talking about. It Paul uses the language regularly. Think about Romans 12. Now offer yourselves as living sacrifices. Where does that come from? Well, it comes from 11 chapters of the grace and assurance of who God is. And therefore, in response to that, we are a bloodless sacrifice. By the grace of God, because of what Jesus did, blood is no longer shed. But the giving of ourselves, now that doesn't stop. That is part of what we are called to do. Because why? Because God gives of himself. Again, he never asks for something that he doesn't give you first. He comes and He washes our feet. He comes and He gives Himself. We could go through the whole liturgy, which we will in a minute. But it is a process. It is a process meant to restore your relationship, to give you context for the week that you live in. The other six days. It's a model for everything we do. Structure is designed to help us know who God is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we come into worship, we worship a Trinitarian God. We're called by the great plan of the Father. We have access because of the work of the Son and the application of the Spirit to us that we might be spiritually alive. We worship Trinitarian. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We learn about God in the process of worship. Who calls us? Who sustains us? who makes us alive and gives us eyes to see and ears to hear. That is throughout the worship service. Think of the the liturgy here in Isaiah. What happens first? Isaiah, most of the scholars tell us, is likely in temple worship. It's where God normally meets with his people. He's ushered into and given a vision of what's happening simultaneously in the very throne room of grace. Which is a powerful scene that even... The temple itself cannot surpass. And there is the great creator of the universe, robed. Isaiah can't even describe what he looks like. The best he can do is just say, you understand, it was so amazing. His robes filled the temple and the whole place shook. Picture the magnitude and the glory. But Isaiah is ushered in. He's called. What did we do when we started worship this morning? We were called into worship. That has implications talk about again briefly in a moment there is great celebration and praise what happens in our liturgy and worship we come into the presence of god invited reminded that he wants to meet with us and we see that praise is in first response to the glory of seeing god ushered into his presence we see the beauty of god and it's right for us to praise his character and his nature it is what regularly happens throughout Scripture when people come into the presence of God. They praise Him. There is a response of praise. But very quickly, there's another response. Which is, in and of myself, I don't belong here. I can't stand in the presence of this holy, glorious God. In and of myself, I cannot be here. In and of my own strength, I cannot sustain this existence, I will be blown away. So the first response to being called into the presence of God and seeing the glory of God is to rightly acknowledge His holiness and His otherness and His beauty. The second response is to recognize, I am not other, I am not holy, in and of myself, I do not have the righteousness to stand here. And so Isaiah responds as we all do. And as often you see throughout Scripture... When people come into contact with the divine, what are they doing? They're taking off shoes. They're not looking. They're falling face down. They're fearful. They confess. And Isaiah confesses both for himself and for the people that he is a part of. Interestingly enough, this runs completely contrary to our culture. We want to only confess our sins as if we don't exist in a community or in history. Even the assurance of pardon we read today. What is it? We love the fact that God blesses us generation after generation. We really hope he didn't mean that we might actually have to pay for the consequences of our grandparents' sins. Sadly, from Scripture, I can't give you a whole lot of evidence that we're off the hook. We have an individual and a corporate identity. We are individually, and only God can do this, right? Right? Only God can say, everything in the universe is all about you. My personal relationship with you. And everything in the universe is all about everybody else at exactly the same time. That you can experience a completely infinite personal relationship with God and have an infinite, intimate experience in worship, individually and even in collective worship, and at the same time recognize that it's all about everyone else around us. And for that to be beautiful and whole and no one gets shortchanged, only an infinite God can have it be all about you and all about everybody else at exactly the same time. And that's what worship is about. This is about you entering the presence of God individually called and all of us called collectively as a people, which means we have individual joy and experiences with the divine. We also have that recognition that individually, There are reasons why this week, five minutes before I walked into worship, I cannot stand in the presence of a holy God if it were not for forgiveness, if it's not for Jesus. So I start with that confession as I experience it. But collectively, the people, we know that we can't stand in the presence of a holy God. That if we know much about history, we know that the church's history is just as problematic as secular history. in Selfishness, blindness, short-sightedness, fear, protection. There's nothing more tragic when the sounds coming from the church are those of fear. What do we have to be afraid of? If the resurrection is true, exactly what is so unnerving? Yes, there are short-term difficulties. Yes, Paul's honest about the fact that there's suffering. Jesus says we'll have to die to self. i not saying it's painless, but fear that it's all going to fall apart or that somehow we're not going to survive. No, what we can do is confess that fear, individually and corporately. So we come into the presence of God, we recognize that we are called, we recognize the holiness of God, we recognize that we are not holy, we confess, and then, of course, instantaneously, what happens? That seraph grabs that coal and comes, and he touches Isaiah's lips, and he purifies him. Again, symbolic, a foreshadowing of what Christ would do in his completeness. Nonetheless, even here in the Old Testament, there is assurance of pardon. You can stay. This has made you clean. The vision of my holiness was not meant to drive you away from worship. And I will provide a way that you can stay in worship with me. That we might serve one another. That you might be served by me and therefore learn what it is to be like me. And to serve others. I want you to stay. Your sins are atoned for. I will not heap guilt. I will not add additional things, I'll just come, and it may hurt, but I will purify you. That's individual and corporate. God sees his church as a bride, ready for her wedding. There's nothing more beautiful. That's the way he sees us collectively. Again, we read the papers, the bride looks a little bit more disheveled You have to have Jesus' view to see how beautiful we really are. Do we trust his word or do we trust ours? Do we trust God's word when he says our sins are forgiven? Or do we hold on to guilt and shame in a way that's completely inappropriate after God assures us of his love? Do we doubt when we are forgiven? I certainly have a tendency to. They're hard words to accept. Both because of the dependency they cause, but also, every fiber of my being wants some ability to earn it, to show God that He should forgive me, that I've tried pretty hard. I just need Him to kind of help me over a little bit, a little bit of uh, a little bit of my effort and His grace. There's no room for that when the from the altar touches our lips that is all of grace and so the basics of worship are call praise confession assurance and then what happens god says who's going to go we read through the rest of this passage god gives isaiah a very hard job but Interestingly enough, it's not just about hearing that we're assured of our forgiveness, but God created you and he created me for a purpose. He created his church for a purpose. To reflect his glory, to act in creation as he acts towards us, i.e. as servant, as caretaker, as glorifier, as one who builds and improves and enjoys And so there's a calling to go out into the world. We were redeemed for a purpose, not to just get off this thing, this planet, not to get on a lifeboat, not to hope the whole thing doesn't go down the toilet, but actually to be a part of the process of redemption. Isaiah's difficult job is that of a prophet to say, look, there are consequences collectively and individually to what Israel's done. You and I have a calling to be instruments of reconciliation. Paul calls us ambassadors as if God were making his plea through us. God says, who will go? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. The response to God's word, the response to God's grace, is a response to be a part of his kingdom, to participate in the great work, of what it means to be sons and daughters of the Most High. Jesus came, not simply to create a lifeboat, which we all know theologically, He came to establish his kingdom. Again, it's so important for us to remember that what Jesus says when he proclaims the good news is the kingdom of God is here. Not the good news is I found a way off this rock. Here's what you do. Here's how how we get to heaven. No, he says the good news is the kingdom is here. Would you like to participate in it with me as we build it? Again, I'm not expressing a view of utopia. Jesus is going to have to return. The work that's going to have to be done and redemption of creation is beyond our ability. The question isn't whether or not we're going to get it done. The question is whether we participate in this interim time in what he's doing, being about the work of the kingdom. Worship then becomes instruction and encouragement to the disciples of Christ in how they might be instruments of reconciliation, how they might be ambassadors for the kingdom. It tells us then, it's education at that point, isn't it? It's instruction for disciples. But then, it's less present here in this text, but it's present throughout the rest of Scripture. God gives us what we need, he instructs us, and he blesses us and sends us out. Jesus gives us the Lord's Supper Regularly throughout Scripture, God blesses His people with benedictions when He sends them out to do the work of the kingdom. Engaging in worship, we're not sent out with a go-get-it-done. We are sent out with, and I will be with you even till the very end of the age. My Spirit is with you. I will give you the strength to do it. I will guide you in all wisdom. I don't send you off on a job without going with you and preparing the way. And so we have benedictions. We have the Lord's Supper. He doesn't send us out without provision. He sends us out with a meal that is a foretaste of the wedding feast of the Lamb. Communion should not primarily be a time where we remember how lousy we are. That's what we do in confession, which is done, well, depending on how long I preach, somewhere about 30 minutes before you get to the Lord's Supper. When you get to the Lord's Supper, you've already been assured of your position at the table because of Christ, expecting to be fed. Yes, we remember what it cost to set the table, but the table was set so that you could be fed to go be a part of the kingdom in what we do. Basic outline to what you experience every week. Recognize those parts. Now, what's the cash value? How does this then apply the rest of the week in what often is called small-W worship. Like, how do I participate in big-W worship Sunday, small-W worship, right? Track with me a little bit longer, I promise. Worship shapes all of what we do. We have a world that feels unwelcome. We have people desperately longing to be invited into community and relationship. The world is fractured. We're fractured into tribes. We're fractured into Political parties, we're fractured into socioeconomic groups, we're fractured into races, and one of the things we don't do is call one another into relationship the way we want to. It's here, it's there. Interestingly, for the Christian, the origin and the motivation to call to the nations and to call to our neighbors comes from the fact that we have been called. Those times when you feel like no one wants to be with you, one of the ways you beat back that lie is by remembering how you are weakly called into the presence of God. Don't discount that. Don't say it's because God has to. He actually doesn't. Do you remember the end of that part of Exodus? I will not pardon the guilty. He doesn't have to, interestingly enough. He chooses to out of his love and grace and mercy. But isn't that beautiful? It's because you were worthy. Not because he is some sort of divinely compelled to be nice to you. He did so on purpose. With thought and care. You've been called. How does that give you strength and the willingness, even if you're an introvert, to call one person? extrovert may call 20. It's not about numbers. It's not about being like somebody else. It is about being who you are created to be in Christ. Is there anything more glorious than walking around the Oregon mountains and coming across pools, waterfalls, and vistas, and recognizing that that was created by God? Does it not give context? What you experience here in worship should enliven those experiences as we hike around the mountains, as we enjoy the beauty of creation, as we see it in one another's faces in acts of kindness and love and mercy, It is worthy of praise. What you experience in that opening part of your worship service should give context, and what we experience out in the week, we should bring back to inform the way we praise God in worship. It becomes a wonderful cycle of praise, one experience enriching the other. It's meant to do so, meant to give us context, forgiveness, confession. Again, something sorely lacking. We have difficulty confessing some sins, ease, perhaps, almost casualness, confessing others. God knows, and yet he desires for us to know what we're capable of by saying it out loud, saying it out loud to one another. Individual and corporate confession is a right response to who God is, but my stars, if we confess what we just confessed in that written confession earlier. Can we really get on a high horse later this week and look down at somebody else whose actions we're not terribly proud of or think are beneath us? If we take to heart what we say corporately, does it not give context and exercise the muscle of self-examination so that instead of coming in as Pharisees, we come in as one beggar showing another beggar where to find bread? Brother or sister, Friend, you cannot continue in that lifestyle. It will kill you. Let me tell you about the lifestyle that just about killed me. Whether it was a lifestyle of self-righteousness, whether it was a lifestyle of sin and violence that took us away from the grace of God where we harmed others one way or another, nonetheless, when we confess together, we are preparing ourselves to come into contact with a believing and non-believing world without pharisaical superiority. God, help us if we take on Matthew, uh, Luke 18. Dear God, thank you that I am not like other sinners. Grab hold of your confession. Make it your own. It will give you a sensitivity and a generosity. You will not make sin less important in your life, but you will become far more gracious in the way you care for one another in your own sins and brokenness. We will become more gentle, not more tolerant, but more patient, more forgiving. The two-edged sword of confession is that we don't pretend that sin is anything less than it is. And at the same time, we are the illusion that we are beyond it, in our deepest core and in some pretty profound ways, is an illusion as well. It drives our interaction. And then, of course, Forgiveness. Forgiveness. How hard it is for us to forgive ourselves, let alone the other. Take those assurance of pardons, drive them deep into your heart and soul. Let them shape your very existence. It's true, you've been forgiven. There is nothing that can be brought against you if you are in Christ. You are forgiven. There becomes the resource in which you are able to forgive others. You can't drum it up in yourself. When God says I need you to forgive other people, he doesn't give you something a request. He doesn't give a demand without providing the resources. His our ability to forgive comes from the ability to forgive others. It should permeate our week. If you're doubting your ability to forgive somebody, go back to the confession and forgiveness of sins you went through the week before. If you're doubting your own forgiveness, hear the assurance of pardon again. It's truer than what you feel. Because it comes from the one who made you. I could go on and on. It's a beautiful thing, worship. Structured in a way to encourage you, to transform you, to send you out prepared and blessed, individually and corporately. I believe that the questions of evangelism, education, experience, praise... They're all a part of heavenly worship. They're all there for our access. They're all there for us to take out into the world a far more glorious picture than anything the world has ever seen. Every opportunity to see the reflected glory of God back into the world. Worship shapes us for that. Expect it. Want it. Demand it. It is your birthright. He will never, never ask you to do something that he has not first provided all the resources you will require. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, again, so much is true. An infinite God creating an opportunity for us to engage with him is going to have almost infinite implications for our lives. Lord, may we begin to plumb the depths of it. May we begin to expect it. May we desire for worship to be a time where you transform us. And may that be for your praise and glory, not just in this hour, but the rest of the week as well. In Christ's name, amen.